You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. We have a major sell-off on our hands right now, wiping out all of that huge Fed relief rally from yesterday. A 75 basis point hike may be off the table, but inflation is not. We'll show you the latest data in a moment. The consumer stocks are getting crushed, tech getting hammered, financials falling even with rates on the rise. We'll talk about the best ways to make money as we try to make sense of these markets and see whether the Fed is making a historic mistake here. But first, let's just get the numbers on this huge reversal. Dom Chu, over to you. All right, so 900-point gains yesterday, 400 points for the Nasdaq, all erased and more. What you're seeing on the corner of your screen over there is a Dow that's only down 991. Now, I say that at the lows, we were down over 1,100 points there. So yes, still toward towards the lows of the session. To Kelly's point, look at the three underperforming sectors out there on the right. It's discretionary, technology, and communication services, arguably the three most important sectors in the market because those three sectors house the biggest stocks out there. That's the, that's the key there. You want to watch those big media stocks, big technology stocks, and those big consumer discretionary ones like Tesla, like Amazon. So take a look at the numbers here as we show, show you what's happening right now with the Dow down 950 points. If I show you a chart of the one-year performance of the NASDAQ composite overall, what you are going to see is a certain amount of movement to the downside from the highs. Now, this is the ETF, the QQQ, that tracks the NASDAQ 100. From the record highs that we saw late last year to where we are now, the drawdown is roughly 24%. So that's how big it's been as a fall from the record highs that we've seen. If you take a look and drill down a little bit further, what's the reason why? Interest rates are, again, part of that story. A bit of a reprieve yesterday, but now 10-year Treasury note yields at almost 3.09%. you got to go all the way back to November of 2018 before you can kind of see some of those moves there. So watch those 10-year note yields driving a lot of that downside. And I mentioned the stocks, Kelly, to focus on. Check this out. Look at these four in particular. Apple is down 5%, Microsoft down 4.5%, Alphabet down 4.5%, and 6.5% declines for Amazon. This is the so-called trillion-dollar club. Tesla is no longer in there, but these four stocks, Kelly, represent 10% of the S&P 500's overall weighting and nearly 40% of the NASDAQ 100. These stocks matter, and they are down some of the most. They're the ones that are acting, acting like the most weight if you will, bring in that kind of gravity effect for the stock market overall. That's the reason why you care, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. So what was it that set the bond market off this morning? It could have been the data. Take a look at the figures behind me. They show that productivity dropped 7.5% last quarter, while compensation spiked. Unit labor costs were up 11.5%, and even that trailed the inflation rate. So in real terms, compensation year-on-year dropped. All of this shows why the Fed can't afford to just go it easy here on tightening policy. Let's get to Rick Santelli out in Chicago with the very latest. Rickster? Yes, and I'll tell you what. You know what year we started monitoring productivity? It was 1947. You know the last time we had a number bigger than minus 7.5% for productivity? 1947. It's the second month it existed, and it's the second worst number ever. Now, there's a million asterisks, I understand, but it is what it is. We had minus 1.4% uh, for GDP that quarter and unit labor costs. 
uh, Kelly pointed out, 11.6. That is the highest unit labor cost since the first quarter of 2014. Look at a two-year note yield. Okay, here we are at 271. It's up almost seven basis points. Now let's go down the curve for a two-day at 10s. As it sits at 308, it's up 15.15 basis points. Now, we could look at the data and say, wow, uh, yields moving up doesn't really seem to mesh with the weak productivity. It meshes with unit labor costs. But there's a lot of logistics in the market. And many of the trades today are reversing, flattening trades, meaning they were short two years, they were long tens, they are now reversing that. And as Dom pointed out, we're on pace for the highest yield close in tens since November of 2018. But maybe this chart is more. You know, Kelly, yesterday at, after Fed time, you asked me what to watch. I said twos to tens. Some of my buddies emailed me, why that? Well, this is why that. Look at a one-month chart. It is zoomed from right around 19 to where it sits now at almost 37 just since Fed minutes, or excuse me, since the Fed statement was read. And there's a reason for that, because maybe the 75 is off the table, but that doesn't mean inflation is off the table. And finally, the dollar index and the boon, look at boon yields. They've done a big reversal today. They closed above 1% for the first time since September of 2014, and the dollar index reversed. It's on pace for a fresh 20-year high close. Back to you. Rick, boil it down for me in a, in a Rick Santelli haiku. What, why did we change posture so suddenly from last night to today? And what's the broad market takeaway here? You know, I think the reason it dropped is productivity. You know, productivity, and I know that, you know, many economists say this is an anomaly, it's a one-off, don't pay attention. But productivity is the special sauce of our economy. And to see it the way it's progressed and to listen to the Bank of England's nervousness about a recession, I think that oil traders made the right trade. I think that even though we have supply issues and even though Europe has many more issues regarding energy, it, it, on the surface of it, less demand means you need to pare back a bit. And I think that's what the price may be reflecting. Productivity, five syllables, perfect for a haiku. Rick, thank you, Rick Santelli. And by the way, don't blame yourself for feeling a bit of whiplash in these markets lately. Go back to last Tuesday, we dropped 800 points. Felt like a big thing at the time. Then we rallied 600 points on the Dow last Thursday. Here's a look at the price action over the past week. Oh, but then we reversed course and dropped more than 900. Remember that to close out April last Friday. Just this week, we started uh, with pretty muted uh, gains to the upside before exploding up 932 yesterday. And here we are down about 1,100 points today. CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli is down at the NYSE. Mike, what's the chatter? I mean, it's, first of all, short-term volatility, like you described there, Kelly, just feeds on itself for a while. Everything that's happened today, from high to low, has been contained by the range of the last three days. So all we've done is go back over areas in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ where we've already been, you know, this week or late last week. All that is to say uh, that you've got a very low conviction level because there's a wide range of potential outcomes and every single piece is subject to a lot of interpretation. I think the bigger picture, too, is you've got steep downtrends in the biggest stocks and it's a wounded tape for that reason. And therefore, uh, people are quick on the sell. It's risk management mode. And I, I mean, I know, you know, maybe yesterday at four o'clock, it was easy to say we were going to give it all back. I don't think it was easy to say because it's very much uh, kind of 
spring-loaded in both directions. Today's activity starts to seem a little indiscriminate, starts to seem like it's the concentrated hedge fund stocks that are getting hurt the most. Maybe there's some sort of liquidations going on. It doesn't mean it's not legitimate activity, uh, but it does tell you that there are lots of kind of extraordinary influences once you get a tape under this kind of stress for four months. What would you add in terms of uh, most important places, metrics, parts of the market to watch here? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I guess the levels matter to some degree. We're still, as as kind of uh, brutal as it feels, you've still not really disproven the idea that this market has somehow found its footing in the, you know, 4,100-ish range on the S&P and hasn't gone uh, below it. The volatility index is not near last uh, this week's highs because, again, we've been at these levels for a while. So nothing is really telling you that this is either over or to me, to me, the start of something either. The credit markets are not really panicking right now. You could look at a chart of the HYG high yield ETF. That's not telling the story. That's about treasury yields going up for the most part. Cash high yield bonds are not blowing out. And so to me, if this is what's going on in equities, when credit is not necessarily under renewed pressure, or at least people aren't worried about the solvency story and all that, then I think it's, uh, it's mostly just the same kind of uh, corrective type action as opposed to some, you know, greater panic that's setting in. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, thank you. We appreciate it. Mike Santoli. So what should investors do now? Where are the opportunities and what should we expect from the Fed? Let's get more with Barry Knapp. He's managing partner and director of research at Ironsides Macroeconomics. What a 24 hours, Barry. What's your main advice for investors right now? First of all, those are a couple of incredible segues from Dom and from uh, Rick Santelli in particular to to my thoughts on all this. Um, I started to write out a little bit of a note and I described it as the valuation come come up. And so coming into the Fed meeting, uh, I thought that there was scope for a serious relief rally in equities uh, in the front end of the Treasury market, both of which I thought were reasonably appropriate, uh, appropriately priced for the projected Fed path for the inflation outlook, which we could certainly talk about because I do think it has peaked. Um, But within the equity market, there's still seriously overvalued parts. And and Dom spoke to that, which is tech and tech-related sectors, as well as defensive sectors, are still really rich and have not resolved this valuation problem. The the other parts of the market, though, that were going to participate in the relief rally, and I thought it would last a little bit longer, was the long end of the treasury market. Um, But again, there, it is ridiculously priced. The term premium on 10-year treasuries is still negative. 10-year real rates are only marginally positive. This speaks to the colossal Fed policy mistake, right? People talk about the mistake of still easing last year. It was the fact that they drove 10-year real rates so low and so far below the inflation expectations, that that's misallocating capital and causing that overvaluation in other parts of the stock market. How do they fix it? So, Barry, to your point, I mean, we've, we've had sort of a dot-com era correction in a lot of tech stocks. Um, even back then, uh, we had a six uh, two-quarter recession, basically a, a relatively mild one. We had nothing like the inflation dynamic that we have today. So what should the Fed do right now? Well, you and I were emailing about this a little bit yesterday. First of all, they should not be so tentatively <clears throat> moving into quantitative tightening. This is really disconcerting that the vast majority of easing through the pandemic was not the 150 basis point rate cuts. It was 
unlimited purchases of treasuries and mortgages and then 120 billion per month, long after they should have been doing that, that um, drove their holdings to a third of the agency mortgage-backed securities and treasury markets. Then when they announced the taper process or, or the start of QT, they're going into that very tentatively. That's what they really should be doing is trying to unwind that and move those longer term rates significantly higher to cool off housing, to cool off all this malinvestment. Yeah. And yet instead, they're going to jack short rates up. So, yeah, OK, they're not going to do a 75. Big deal. The real easing was in their QE purchases. So they need to get on with QT and stop being so tentative. about. It. That's exactly what Dave Zervos and others have been saying as well. Barry, so let me ask you, at a time when most investors are kicking themselves for being in equities, thinking, oh, I should have waited, I should have done something else with the money, I don't know where to go. Your advice here is to reduce cash and add equities that you can still be overweight equities. Am I right on all of that? Yes, I think you should be putting money to work in cyclical stocks. I mean, there's a lot of price action relative sector performance that looks like it's late cycle behavior, but it's also the cycle behavior you see when the Fed starts normalizing policy. 1994, this looks very similar to. 2004, 2010, 11, 16. So this is what happens. These sectors are very reasonably priced and inflation has clearly peaked in goods prices. House prices are next. And I can see that in the correlation of the various cities in the 20 city CoreLogic Index, it's come down hard. House prices are going to roll over. And then wage growth in the sectors that led the wage declines, and this will be big tomorrow, meaning trade and transportation and manufacturing, those look like they've peaked as well. Uh, participation's picking up to an extent. And um, I think we're going to, the Fed is going to get their opportunity to slow the process later this fall. All right. So if you've priced the front end appropriately and they're not going to drive us off an economic cliff, which I don't believe they are, then the cyclical parts of the market look really attractive. Well, I appreciate it because, you know, a lot of people who share your sort of diagnosis or concerns are much more cautious. And it's good to hear that this is still a place to be as this all uh, gets fought out. Barry, we'll leave it there for now and always, always appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Kel. Barry Knapp with Ironsides. Now, as we were just discussing, that 75 basis point hike may be off the table for now, but inflation certainly is not. And just look at oil. Earlier in the session, we hit $111 a barrel. That's higher than we were before President Biden's mega SPR release. Uh, now we've come back down to about 108. Brian Sullivan is here with more. And in a weird way, Brian, this rally has been almost stealth this time. Consumers, I think, had breathed a sigh of relief like, OK, prices at the pump have peaked. Now do we have to rethink that? We have to rethink it. And, and by the way, we got a little, I'm going to throw a little breaking news on you right now, Kelly, so I apologize for kind of popping on with this. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee minutes ago just passed what's called the no, no Oil Production and Basically Cartels Act, which is called NOPEC. NOPEC, okay. So the Senate Judiciary Committee just passed this. Hmm. It goes now to President Biden. If he signs this into law, which he probably will, it will allow the U.S. government not force, but allow the U.S. government to sue OPEC over alleged market manipulation. I just got a call literally moments ago from a very high-level OPEC source who said to me, ask yourself this question. Is this going to help the volatility price of oil? This is not going to do anything for the price of oil and is going to increase tension. I'm, I'm sort of summarizing our conversation well, that's literally two just, minutes ago offset. Just to be sort of, um, what's the word in markets, pragmatic? I mean, all we care about from the purpose of this discussion is what's it going to mean for the oil price? And I don't see how this legislation would help it go lower. Am I wrong? 
You're not wrong at all. I mean, what's the only thing that's going to cause oil to go lower is demand destruction from higher prices, which is a possibility, but nothing is shown that yet. In fact, oil demand, particularly in places like India, is going up. China, when they end this, this COVID zero policy, which at some point they will, oil demand is going to soar there and it's going to deplete their stockpiles. He, here's the thing. The, the president, when he was a senator in 2000, urged President Clinton to sue OPEC. So President Biden does have a history of sort of butting heads with OPEC. And we know he's not getting along that well with the Saudis right now. No, but the relationship, at least according to the journal recently, suggested, and I can confirm this as well, that the relationship was starting to get a little bit better. Mm -hmm. If the president signs this into law, and he may not, the Judiciary Committee just passed it. If he signs it into law, those relationship thaws would seem likely to then go away. In other words, increase tension with Saudi Arabia at a time when they and the UAE are probably the only two OPEC members that have any spare capacity or ability to add more barrels to the market. Absolutely. In 2019, uh, reportedly, Saudi Arabia threatened to sell oil and currencies other than the dollar if Washington went ahead and passed this. So there's implications for FX markets, for oil, and and for all the rest of it. There's also the midterms coming. This inflation is a top concern for 9 out of 10 Americans, depending on what poll you uh, consult. So if the president signs this bill because he feels like it's the right thing to do, should we expect, on the other hand, more maneuvering to try to lower the oil or gasoline price through whatever means they feel well, is available? Well, the problem is we're running out of means <laughs> to do that. Um, all right, let's get into it. The SPR release, the, the shock and awe that you referred to, Kelly, that doesn't start until May 15th. There's a smaller one underway now. About 450,000 barrels a day is what they're getting out of it, according to somebody I spoke with today that would be in a position to know. That one starts... May 15th. So you might have more barrels coming onto the market, but the reality is, as I noted, demand is rising. Now, things like COVID could turn that back down. But if China comes back online in a major way, we're going to see it. Going back to inflation, natural gas very quickly, Kelly, 850. Yeah. Okay. We've been talking about electricity bills. I was in the UK in November because I'm kind of use them as a canary in the coal mine. Sure. There, millions of people in the UK right now can't afford to heat or cool their homes. They're struggling. Not saying we're there yet. Well, Texas, but it, but we'll it, see. But yeah. at 850, for those of you who are on a fixed rate plan, it'll probably adjust higher. For those who are not, I'm sure they've already seen their power bills go up. It just adds another layer of inflation. Natural gas is used in the making of pretty much everything. This desk, sure, right? That computer monitor, this this iPhone. Natural gas goes into everything. So. Natural gas is a, is a really big issue as well, just along with oil. I think the bottom line here is that we already know, and this came up in the Fed's uh, press conference yesterday, this question of, well, should the Fed really be trying to get the oil or even the natural gas price down? That's not their mandate. But implicit in what you're saying is... is Jay Powell going to buy Exxon? Exactly. I mean, I <laughs> that said, what's he going to do? This is not an isolated incident, right? Commodity prices of all kinds have been breaking out to new highs this year. There is huge global demand and there is not enough supply to meet it. What I don't care which commodity you want to pick. Biggest right problem is people, the ultimate intellectual commodity, right? It, it, talking to producers in the Permian Basin, they're going on short shifts now because they don't have enough people to run 24-7. Wow. Oil's a hard business. It's hot. It's super cold. It's dangerous. You can get paid well, but if you can get paid just as much to work at a desk or a safer job, one, by the way, that doesn't take you away from your family for weeks at a time, you might look at that better option. Shortage of labor and shortage of steel casing for tubing for oil pipes 
is a huge deal right now. Great, great points. Again, there's the nat gas price around $8.70 per million BTUs, highest since 08. Oil up there as well. Quick final point, Brian. Let's just pile up some final doom and gloom on top of this because the problem with all of these demand uh, side issues outstripping supply is the diesel crisis we're potentially facing here, especially in the Northeast. Are you hearing anything on that front in terms of resolving prices or resolving the supply? Oh, am I the Grim Reaper up here? <laughs> Folks, I apologize. <laughs> I, I, this is not, I like to be happy. Um, diesel fuel stockpiles in the Northeast, not in, the re- not in California, not in Texas, in the Northeast here, where we always seem to have problems with everything, right? are at a record low, 32-year low, but that's the lowest, that's when they started tracking them. So it's an all-time low. Is there a risk of running out of diesel? I don't want to go that far, but it's close, and spot prices are soaring. By the way, trucks, trains, and airplanes with vis-a-vis jet fuel, I'm told they need these products to operate. You'd think, yeah. You'd think. Mm-hmm. So if you're a trucker, you're buying $7 diesel, six fifty diesel, your rates are going to go up. I know there's been talk about rates coming down a little bit, but they're going to make it up with a gas surcharge that won't go into the official rate. So trucking costs overall are not coming down. They may actually go up. I feel terrible saying all this no, stuff. No, and it expands well beyond just the energy markets. When you talk about the cost of moving everything around, it's going to continue to feed By the way, can I plug myself? Five o'clock, fast money. I'll be hosting tonight. We're going to talk a lot more about oil and gas. Excellent. Can't That's wait. my fee. Can't wait to see the close. That's my fee. <laughs> On a day like yes. this. Brian, thank you very, very <laughs> much. Right, Dow's down 990. When you see this volatility, what kind of strategy do you take with the markets? Do you stay active? Do you stay passive when it feels like nothing is working? Let's bring in Bob Bassani down at the New York Stock Exchange and Michael Yoshikami, the founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Bob, first of all, this debate was kicked up a bit again recently with uh, Elon Musk and Kathy Wood. But, you know, right now, investors are just desperate for strategies and styles. And uh, what should they be thinking about? Well, active managers often claim that they really perform better in a down market. The historic evidence, or in a volatile market, the historic evidence is that they generally don't. Right now, it's pretty clear, active or passing, passive, nothing much is working. And I think Brian hit upon the central theme. Inflation has not gone away. Mr. Powell may have repealed the idea of talking about a 75 basis point cut, but he hasn't repealed inflation. I think the productivity numbers down big today, unit labor costs up big, that's inflation. That's a problem for the market. Sustained inflation erodes profit margins. What Brian was talking about, oil, 103 to 111, that's sustained inflation for a tax on a consumer, essentially. So the question is, how long are we going to have to deal with this? Just because the Fed says we're not doing 75 basis points, it, these concerns don't necessarily go away. And we can talk about the impact this may have on earnings, Kelly, which haven't come down yet. That's going to be another potential leg now. We can talk about that as well. Michael, I mean, I don't want you to have to speak against your own book, right, to say to investors, yeah, just go passive, no problem, the S&P will be fine in the long run. But at the same time, the average person might not feel comfortable being a stock picker, might say the only option they have in their 401ks, for instance, is some kind of passive fund. Any advice here? Well, first of all, let's be clear what the word passive means. Passive means you basically put it in an effect. You don't care about headlines. You don't care about news. Let me give you context. In 2008, 2009, how much the S&P 500 went down, the supposed more conservative index relative to the NASDAQ, it went down over, ready, 50%. Wow. So are viewers comfortable with a portfolio strategy that could go down 50%? Um, A lot of people aren't. Um, Bob mentioned that a lot of active managers talk about they do better in down markets. That's only if that active manager actually invests based on that perspective. 
So I think that it's um, really important that if you're um, on an active strategy, that you understand what bets you're making in the portfolio. Because if you're in a passive strategy, you're pretty much buying big tech, which is why the S&P 500 has been down as much as it has been. And Look at what the NASDAQ yeah. in the bear market yeah, I was just going to say, Bob, we could even zoom it out a little bit more, not just kind of stock picking versus uh, passive investing, but stocks versus bonds. The 60-40 portfolio is down big this yeah. year. It's having one of its worst years in history. Yeah, uh, well, you know, it's 80-20 is the new 60-40. Uh, we had a lot, big debate about this at the ETF conference. The registered independent advisors, the RIAs who were there, were really panicking because they are essentially active. They're using ETF strategies. They have their clients 60-40, and the debate was, do they abandon that strategy? We heard a lot of people say uh, cash and commodities and a small amount of, of uh, uh, short-term treasury bonds with uh, some stocks was the better strategy uh, overall. But if, if Michael's bringing up this whole thing about active versus passive, uh, you saw the numbers that we just put up there. Uh, the vast majority of active managers, uh, more than 85%, underperform their benchmarks over a 10-year period. Uh, that historically has been very, very well studied. And the reason they do is, is very, very simple, because they, these active managers tend to trade too much. They charge too much for their fees. Uh, they're overconfident. There's a lot of competition out there. It's other smart active managers. It's not uh, 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 dumb money at all. And just generally, market timing is really difficult to get right consistently because you have to be right going in and you have to be right going out. And the historical right. evidence is you can't do that consistently year after year. It just doesn't work. Michael, what, yeah. what would you add to that? And also, what is your own strategy right now? What kinds of stocks are you looking for? What, what are you avoiding? Yeah, I, I think Bob makes a good point about in and out is probably not the best way to invest, not only from a tax perspective, uh, but it just hasn't really been effective. But uh, uh, imagine you're a passive fixed income investor. That means you go out and buy 30-year bonds six months ago, right? And your passive doesn't matter, doesn't bother you. I bet it bothers you now. So how are we positioning our portfolios? We've been short duration and fixed income, short of the 10-year treasury for months and months and months in anticipation of what we believe would be hotter numbers on the inflation side. We're more dividend oriented rather than simply passive in terms of investing whatever's in the index because we think dividend strategies are going to have less volatility. Some of the cyclical names will actually do well over the long term. So I think it's really about making sure you're positioned in a way where you're, you're basically um, swinging at the fat pitches that the market provides you. We know about Asia. We know it very well. I was just talking to someone in China yesterday. Are we heavily invested in China? Have not been, have not been in emerging markets heavily um, for quite a long period of time because of our concern. So it's really a matter of how far do you vary off the benchmark, Kelly. I think where you get in trouble is you start to believe that what you think is right all the time. That's dangerous. So what you want to do is have sort of a core passive strategy and then sort of explore other opportunities and position your sectors in ways based on what you think is going to happen with the economy and the market. Right. That's how I think you can successfully invest. All right, gentlemen, Michael Yoshikami, 
Bob Bassani with some advice for this market. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And let's get a quick check on the markets right now. At the lows, the Dow is down more than 1,200 points. 1,232 was the low print. We're down 1026 right now, or 3%. The S&P lower by more than 3%. Uh, the NASDAQ lower today as well. Every sector is in the red with discretionary and technology, the biggest laggards. Uh, as we continue to watch rates move higher, let's dive deeper now into these moves in tech. Christina Partsinevelis over at the NASDAQ with a look at the biggest movers. Christina? Kelly, the velocity in these moves on the NASDAQ are really just something, uh, just something today. That's all the words I have. But NASDAQ having its worst day since June 2020. It's actually given up $7 trillion just since November alone. So take a look at some of these stats. We're seeing right now about 20-ish new highs, but over 350 new lows on the NASDAQ just today. And often, keep in mind, we do see these large swings as investors digest the Fed or any Fed decision for that matter. But today's trigger for high growth tech is the 10-year above 3%. It's highest level since 2018. Bookings, booking holding, as well as charter communications, only two in the green for the NASDAQ 100. The biggest laggards, though, Chinese e-commerce platform, Pinduoduo, eBay on weaker guidance, Match Group, all of these companies are down double digits with, with the exception of Match. But the socks responsible for this massive swing downward on the NASDAQ because of their weight is the usual big tech. You've got Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, Alphabet, Meta. Microsoft and Apple actually giving up all of their gains from yesterday. And that's creating a problem for Kathy Wood and her infamous ARK Innovation, which is down over about 7%, now 8% today. And I want to focus on semiconductors. The SMH Semiconductor ETF down about 5% the last I checked, but holding on to weekly gains, selling the biggest chip movers, Corvo on lower Q2 revenue guidance. There's concerns about China lockdowns, followed by NVIDIA, Marvell Technology, and on semiconductors. And with all that talk about inflation and the pinched consumer, online retail taking a massive hit. You've got Etsy down over 16% just today alone on pace for its worst day since November 2020. PayPal down about 7%. JD.com down 6%. It appears markets are still in the early stages of deciphering how much damage interest rates will do for economic and earnings growth, Kelly. Anything jump out at you, Christina? I mean, given the, the scope and breadth of the declines that you've mentioned? One of the topics I want to look into more is whether we're going to go forward and it's going to be mid-cap tech that is going to sustain this market, no longer big tech that we've relied on so heavily for the past decade. Yeah, exactly. Christina, thank you so much. We've actually heard a number of different investors saying, as we joked the other day, if you haven't heard of it, it's a safer place to invest. <laughs> Christina Parsonevel <laughs> exactly. is out at the Nasdaq. Still ahead, the rising rates trade. A closer look at the stocks that should get a lift from higher interest rates. Are they, though? We have the names next. The market sell-off accelerating this afternoon with the Dow down 1,052 points. We've got all angles covered. The Nasdaq, by the way, just off session lows, down almost 5%. And, of course, we're keeping a close eye on rates, which have hit 3.104% on the 10-year. I'm going to have to run over there uh, if it goes any higher. Here with our trades and how to invest as rates rise is Tiffany McGee, the CEO and CIO of Pivotal Advisors and a CNBC contributor. And also here with a look at our technicals after this trade today, Jessica Inskip is director at options play. All right, Tiffany, let's start with you. And where are you looking amid this uh, wreckage? 
So a few places. And so first of all, I read your afternoon note uh, and I think that you are spot on. Uh, I did. Uh, I actually read it every day. And so I think you're spot on that we really do have a demand issue. It's not that we're repu- recovering from, from a pandemic. It's not the supply chain issues. It's not the war in, in, in Ukraine. Those things don't help. But that is not those are not the main issues that we do have a demand issue. And the Fed is going to have to really, really act. And so here are the areas that I'm looking because investors are going to figure out how to kind of navigate through this volatility. So there are a couple of things that I'm looking at. Number one, high dividend growth stocks and quality. It's all about the quality. So there's a name that I like, Chubb. Chubb is the largest publicly traded property and casualty issuer in the world. Uh, they have consistent revenue growth globally, strong uh, high credit ratings, uh, strong revenue uh, sorry, uh, um, operating cash flow year over year. They did about $8.5 billion last year, and they've increased their dividend for the past 28 years. Uh, I also like supply chain hedges. A company called Mosaic hmm. invests in, excuse me, um, actually produce phosphate ash, which is a main ingredient in fertilizer, which we all need, and especially that the supply chain, the food supply chain is being, is, is really um, being stressed right now. They are, I think the stock is up is about 65% for the year. Um, and then just really, you know, having investors think about opportunities to add to their existing positions. You know, Amazon hit a 52-week low today. And I can remember, you know, in 2020, when Amazon was flying high and me wanting to buy more Amazon, but thinking that it was too expensive. So now is a good time to buy the quality names that investors really like and have conviction for long-term. So all of these basically should benefit from a lot of the, the, the pain in the market, you know, and Chubb is a name that's, you know, I think last check was up like eight, nine percent year to date. So that's when a performer mosaic, yeah. Amazon, Nelly. Are there any names, Tiffany, that you look at right now and are tempted by, but for whatever reason, want to skip or places where you have a high conviction that you don't want your capital, you know, anywhere near there? So I would just say, say generally speculative stocks. So the names that I mentioned, Amazon, Chubb, these are quality names. I don't think that uh, any of us can really picture um, a, a time in the near future where Amazon's going out of business. In fact, they're expanding even into shipping, right, to compete against the FedEx and UPXs of the world. Uh, and so that's what I'm really focused on. Um, I, I think in contrast to the end of 2020, where every it seemed like every big or, or relatively large tech name with a really bright idea was really flying high. That's not how we pick stocks, how we should be picking stocks right now. We should really be looking at balance sheets and business models. That's like my theme for this year. Uh, and really thinking about the names that we think have business models that are going to be sustainable and they're going to have opportunities to grow long term because those are probably on sale as well. Absolutely. Tiffany, thank you. It's great to have you here today. We appreciate it. Tiffany McGee. Let's turn and talk some technicals now. Jessica Inskip is director at Options Play. Jessica, all right. I I mean, the charts have kind of been leading. Wouldn't you say that in many cases kind of flashing red for a while, maybe now some confirmation of that? What's the latest? Let's just start with something like the S&P. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's very important to look at the bigger picture. So I like looking at the two-year chart of the S&P 500. And I see some really key support levels or a support zone around 4146 to 4264. And I think those charts are doing exactly what they're intended to do. So right now you can see even today and within the past couple of days, that support zone is exactly where it's holding up. And so that that's a good indication. And know how support works. It is old resistance at some point. So at one point prior, the S&P actually moved past that support, that support zone. It was resistance. So it became new support. So we're holding up 
actually on a consolidation period and looking for a trend upwards or downwards at this point. So it's a good thing holding at those support levels that it's at right now. So it actually doesn't make you all that bearish. You feel like this is there's a glimmer of hope here? There could be. So um, I also look at something called RSI. So whenever the S&P 500 or an underlying security that you're tracking from a technical perspective makes a lower low or a higher high, you want RSI to do exactly the same thing. If it does the opposite, then that indicates a divergence of some sort. And that's happening right now. If you look at the lows in that consolidation period within the last month or so, it's RSI is actually making higher highs rather than lower lows, which is an indication of bullish divergence, which means maybe we are going to move above that support zone. I mean, there are other factors to consider outside of that technical perspective, like interest rates sure. and things out of our control. But overall, no, I'm not, I'm not very bearish or seeing all the red. We had a huge rally yesterday. So we're, we're just essentially erasing that today. Okay. However, that support zone is, is doing its job. And that, that to me is a, a great sign. Very interesting. I'm glad that you noted that. So let's talk a couple of specifics. For example, the XLE, the energy ETF. You're also watching the XLK, the tech uh, trade against the S&P. On each of those energy and tech, what, what are you noting here? So I thought that was interesting. Earlier today, I was charting the various sectors versus the S&P 500 rather than a benchmark that they'd be associated with. Um, and I noticed that technology really follows almost in line with those support levels or any of those key indicators that I'm tracking with the S&P 500, which gives me great confirmation. We just got out of a huge earnings week. There have been some poor earnings in the tech sector. Therefore, that could allude to some really poor market performance because remember the market's forward looking. So as we hear something, it's prices into the market and that's how technical analysts view it. So therefore, that same view within the technology ETF it's showing with the S&P 500. So energy is outperforming. So that's why I'm sending that one over or flagging it because it's something that is performing really well with that high interest rate environment or thinking about inflation. So I think it's just an interesting perspective. Not necessarily this is you should buy into this or sell that. It's more from a technical perspective. Technology has a bigger impact on the market than it used to. All right, Jessica, we'll leave it there. Thank you. And a, a, nice to hear a little bit more optimistic note on what's been a pretty tough session. Jessica Inski. It's a huge down day, but they're actually, this is the perfect segue. There are some green spots in the market. Let's run through some of them, starting with booking holdings. Seema Modi here with me. I saw these earnings last night, Seema, and thought, wow, great, awesome. Dow closed up 900. Booking was fine. Everything's going to be fine. No, not today. Well, booking is holding up, at least the last time I checked. So defying gravity at this moment, I think what sets booking holdings apart from some of the other travel players is, in addition to painting a very optimistic picture around the summer rebound that everyone is expecting, CEO Glenn Fogel was able to quantify what they're seeing in terms of forward bookings, which other companies haven't really done. Uh, he said 15%, tracking 15% above 2019 levels. So at this wow. point, we don't really care as much about year over year. We know the first quarter of 2021 wasn't that strong for travel. Tell us how the demand right now compares to 2019. And right now they're saying it's going to be above pre-pandemic levels. The international exposure also is a benefit for booking holdings. They have a much larger exposure to Europe and Asia. And Glenn Fogel was so far the only CEO to really talk about the green shoots emerging, not just in Europe, but in Asia, which is actually better than Q4. We tend to fixate, Kelly, on the China lockdown, how right. that just disrupted the Asia story. But he's saying, yes, ex-China you're seeing a sequential improvement. The, and the stock is up almost 4%. We should note Expedia is still down more than 5%, Airbnb down 8%. Why is booking 
uh, coming out with such a different tone than what we've heard from other rivals. I think part of it is this geographical exposure because they have a leg up in these other international markets. As those markets improve, Wall Street is saying, well, this is a name that was positioned to do to profit from that. Whereas Expedia, good results, but they also said costs were going up. The CEO's Peter Kern joined us today on Tech Check, but didn't really quantify by how much. So that becomes a question mark for Wall Street. Expedia is also more of a domestic player. They're trying to go more international, but for right now, if you're just looking at where they have a pull, booking is more international than Expedia. It's fascinating because I would have thought that'd be a headwind and it would maybe work exactly the opposite Depends way on when you're looking, right? At the onset of the war in February, uh, booking was down much more than the others because of their footprint. Right now, it seems to be working. So it's also interesting because at a time when we've heard um, a lot of investors say, for instance, we like reopening stocks or we like travel names. You know, we see the surveys. We know it's going to be the summer of travel. This still tells you that stock selection within that approach is so important. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's just a one or a couple day or a one week trend. Maybe they've, you know, largely as we're showing, kind of risen and fallen together. But it does seem like some pretty stark differentiation lately. I think you're you're absolutely right. For the longest time, these travel stocks moved in tandem. Vaccination news, all these stocks would move up. Uh, but now, with earnings, the market is becoming much more discerning around which companies will profit and win in this environment. I think today's a great point, great case in point with booking up, but Expedia, the hotels trading down, even though results from the major hotel operators have been pretty strong. Year-to-date performance will also show you that the hotels uh, are trading really close to their 52-week highs. The online travel operators are not, so maybe there's a bit of a catch-up trade there. And too. we also saw this with the cruise lines starting maybe, I think it was last month, similar kind of phenomena. We started to see uh, Norwegian breaking out to the upside, Royal Caribbean, I think, uh, Carnival more lagging. Again, different uh, business models, different, as you noted, different international exposures. It sounds like the, in a, in a weird way, the globalization theme seems to be helping Norwegian, seems to be helping booking. I can't speak to whether booking has a little bit higher in clientele like Norwegian does as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, higher income customer tends to go to our Norwegian cruise line versus Royal and Carnival. But today, today's results from Royal now a uh, adjusted EBITDA profit for the first time since the pandemic. Cash flow positive for April, so pretty significant results. Of course, a tough tape, so you're not really seeing that in the price action today. Fair enough. A lot to catch up on, but again, some bright spots, or at least one. Seema, thank you, our Seema Modi. Let's turn to another bright spot, which is Albemarle, the lithium name. Pippa Stevens here with more on that for us. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. It's one of the few stocks in the green today, and that follows a jump in their Q1 revenue, and they also raise their outlook. And that follows a surge in lithium prices. Chinese spot prices have more than doubled this year after gaining 500% last year, according to Benchmark. And demand is expected to remain strong as EV makers will need even more lithium to fuel electric supply as supply remains constrained. And Albemarle said in the latest quarter that the, their sales surged 97 percent. The company also hiked its guidance, saying that it renegotiated variable price contracts. In other words, they are taking advantage of the rapid price increase. The stock is up 16 percent this week. A fellow company, Livent, also surging on the week, although both names still down from their November highs, Kelly. And that's something, Pippa, again, that speaks to people trying to look for trends that will work. But so many of these more emerging parts of the market, the speculative parts have been precisely the ones hardest hit. So I can understand there's both the opportunity, the excitement and a little bit of investor caution right now. Yeah, whenever we see a sell-off like this that's really broad-based, the more speculative and growth areas of the market 
are going to take a hit. But, you know, earlier this week, we got another vote of confidence from the Biden administration when they outlined $3 billion for domestic battery manufacturing. And that follows invoking the Defense Production Act earlier this spring for the actual mining side of things. And Vance Brown, who's a PM at Williams-Jones Wealth Management, told me today that we have to remember it takes many years for new mines to come online, three to five years so supply is not going to respond anytime soon. And we have this demand from the EV side of things, from large-scale energy storage. So while these stocks have come under some pressure, you know, the bulls say this is a longer-term, multi-year story and that days like today is, is a day to get in um, when they might have come under some pressure. All right, Pippa. Thank you, Pippa Stevens. Let's talk about opportunity in this sell-off. Let's bring in Nancy Tangler, Laffer Tangler Investments CEO and CIO. Nancy, give us some sage advice here. What what strategies, approaches, price levels, stocks, where should people be looking right now? Well, thanks, Kelly. You know, as a young portfolio manager, I cut my teeth on um, Black Monday when the market was down 22.5% in one day. Mm. And uh, we had a client meeting that afternoon. We'd already prepared the materials. We had to tell them their $10 million portfolio was now eight. Oh. They could just cross that out and uh, make note of it. But what I learned from that is that it's it's rarely a good idea to bet against the, the U.S. stock market and the U.S. economy for a long period of time. So if you have a long-term time horizon, this is an interesting time to be looking for the kind of names that are going to thrive in a slowing economic environment. Because make no mistake, we, we knew we were going to slow this year. Um, the first quarter GDP number was a bit of a surprise, but it was also largely influenced by massive imports, which goes to demand. So um, I think investors need to, uh, and particularly your viewers, need to be thinking about the fact that if it's, if you're in your 401k, you've got the perfect dollar cost averaging model because you're putting money to work every two weeks. This is not the time to get scared out of stocks. Uh, we've already seen a, a pretty significant sell-off. So on that note, one of the things I've been mulling, uh, curious for your thoughts here, is the Fed can be very aggressive in fighting inflation now. And one way or the other, it looks like near term, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a recession, whatever, you know, it's a recession in real terms, whatever you want to call it. It's not great, obviously, and that's not great for capital. But if they don't act aggressively, then we risk having an inflation problem for many more years. And we know that's not necessarily great for stock returns, or maybe it is. So can you just kind of talk through this these two different outcomes and, and which path they may be choosing for us here? Yeah, well, I think, sadly, the policy mistake was already made. And I, I was a little taken aback when the, the Fed chair said yesterday that they were acting so that uh, inflation wouldn't become entrenched. I mean, it's here. And uh, the sticky inflation number by the Atlanta Fed is, is between, you know, four and a half to five percent. That's that's the portion of inflation that takes a long time to change. So think rents, uh, health care costs that get embedded in the system. And so I think the best thing they could do um, well, would A, B, stop talking. Um, that quiet period was when we saw the market rally. Um, B, front end load the increase, uh, the rate hikes. I, I don't know why he took 75 basis points off the table. Uh, I've invested during periods when the Fed was raising 75, uh, sometimes bullish for stocks. It just depends on the underlying economic environment. And, and then I think uh, if they back off some and we can get Washington not to stop spending money, I do think that this will sort itself out. Still have a healthy job market. Uh, we're still seeing growth at the earnings level. I mean, I, I was astonished at how good earnings was, were hmm. this last quarter. Really? And guidance was raised. Yes. You were astonished how good they were because it felt to us like one train wreck after another. You want to just offer on the way out here a couple of names or sectors in particular you think people could pick up? 
Yeah, well, so in the tech space, it, Microsoft uh, had an outstanding quarter. ServiceNow, both of whom are, are sort of part of the solution from, uh, to inflation because of the improvements in productivity they produce by using their products. So both of those companies did very well. Uh, Steel Dynamics had an amazing quarter, raised a dividend 20%. Um, uh, public Storage had an excellent quarter. Uh, they are now digitizing 50% of their signups. So there's there's a lot of good news under underneath the market. Um, it's, it's the names that, the more speculative names that had a difficult time this quarter, but if you just go through and look uh, at at sort of some of the staples, Coke had a great quarter, uh, and I'm trying to think of others, but that's a pretty good list right there. That is and a pretty good list right there. <laughs> and a reminder that it hasn't all been bad news. I mean, there even in the the housing area, there were Sherwin Williams. Uh, there were several uh, little bright spots. Nancy, right. thank you. Thanks for joining us on a day like this, especially. Of course. Nancy Tangler of Laffer Tangler Investments. Well, technology has been leading the declines. It's been true for months now, and today is no exception to that, with the Nasdaq sliding more than 5% at one point, having its worst day of the year. We're just off that level right now. Brent Phil joins me. He is senior technology analyst at Jefferies. Brent, last time we spoke, it was about Twitter and Tesla and all of those exciting things. And last week, it looked like maybe you could blame Elon Musk and that whole Tesla trade for taking down the market, but maybe not today. No, I mean, this is a whole scale exit. Multiples in tech are high. We have clients that are basically going to energy uh, opening trades outside the house, like travel, uh, completely away from our sector. And, and I think what we've been advising clients is just let the storm come through. Don't fight it. Most of our clients want to wait till companies cut guidance in tech. That's inevitable that the economy's slowing, that they have to give up. So we've had multiple correction, and now we need effectively the fundamental correction. And the only way we're going to get clients back into these stocks is for the companies to acknowledge that the climate has changed, that they've taken their pipelines down, their close rates, and that they've reset numbers. Until we do that, there's a buyer strike in tech, and they won't come back. So right now, it, it, it's actually so bearish, it's almost bullish, that we, we really don't see a lot of volume on our desk uh, in terms of high touch as it relates to what clients want to do in tech. So it's actually starting to turn slightly more bullish. We've had a more bearish stance relative to, to multiples. Uh, so I think ultimately uh, it feels like we, we've got a little more pain to go, but, but a lot of this is, you know, we're closer to the bottom than the top, but I, I don't see any anything changing in the next several months until we get the companies that actually got, got below. This is so fascinating. If I could have this, this sort of um, soundbite from the future last year, you know, last February, when ARK-K was trading at 160 and no energy portfolio manager could get any big real money investor to call them back. Look at what a role reversal we're in. You just said clients are leaving you for energy. I mean, let's not understate the significance of that mentality shift. That's huge. Silicon Valley is acting like it's in the middle of a recession. And frankly, they might be in one for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it. It's a it's 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 wild to hear the sentiment, and I've been seeing clients uh, for the last two weeks out, you know, back visiting, and we have portfolio managers that may have owned ten software internet names that own two, and now own Dollar Store, or Walmart, or you know, more defensive stories, uh, believing you know that that things are going to dim, and I think uh, our house view, uh, Jeffries, is that the economy becomes tougher in twenty three. And no one wants to be in in a lot of these names that are interest rate sensitive. So at this point, again, 
uh, we think there's still room for multiples to come lower uh, across many of the, the high-growth software names. Uh, there's some great long-term buys, and certainly there's going to be some names to own for two or three years, but we may end up going 10 to 20% lower before before we we hit, we hit bottom. So uh, I'm sorry, you know, not a lot of great things to report. I, I think, uh, you know, most in, in tech investors right now are in the gr- grizzly bear camp. Uh, they're not they're not friendly little bears. They're, they're grizzly bears. No, absolutely. Uh-huh. It feels, unfortunately, a little bit more like 20 years ago or maybe post-financial crisis. But again, a lot of interesting stuff happened in those years when no one, you know, wanted anything to do with the space. Let's talk about some of the opportunities. Um, several of which, Microsoft, obviously, we just heard that one with Nancy Tangler. Name a few others. Even Snowflake, that one screens well for you? Snowflake does not screen well. Got it, got Fundamentally, it, got it. it screens well, but uh, valuation, it's actually the worst. We do not have a buy in Snowflake. Lo- love the company fundamentally, just think the multiple still has lower to go. Uh, so if you put a, a trough multiple on that, it's going it's going a lot lower. Uh, you know, Microsoft, you know, and Intuit, you look at the Intuit tax business, uh, you know, 90% of the revenue is United States based, no European exposure. So, you know, that's a story that has had consecutive uh, decade plus of, of, of great returns. Uh, so that's a name that, that we would say would be, would be more defensive. If we shift over to some of the travel names, the Airbnbs, the booking.coms, you know, one of the theses is we, we think that you're not going to be investing in your home, you're investing outside your home. So you move away from, from the Netflix, you move away from Zoom, you, you, you move into, hey, where am I going this summer? How am I getting out and engaging? So I think that theme uh, is a powerful theme uh, as well. No one in tech, by the way, is immune. And I think ultimately we're seeing this across the board. The whole group is just getting taken down. So it doesn't really even matter inside the context of what we like in tech. Everything else is being brought down and there's there's really been nowhere to hide. Yeah. And not to pick on Snowflake, but just to give an example, when people say that there are, you know, that this part, segment of the market is still overvalued, what would it mean if that went to the kind of multiple that you warn clients it could? Yeah, what it means is if you look at this high growth uh, list, you know, of, of stories, you know, like data dog, great fundamental story. But if you start to put, you know, lower multiples, it's a 75 to 95 dollar stocks. You know, Snowflake, if you put a lower multiple, it's not 160 dollar stock, it's 120 to 140. You know, and this is based on these stocks that trade at 15 to 20 times. Does it go to 10 to 10 to 15 times? So the you know, those are still expensive multiples, and these are fundamentally the best performing. We we have no arguments. We 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 adore the management team at Snowflake and and the, the position. Just the multiples are are going lower, and those names are are most at risk. So I think you know, there's five categories we talk about: high ASP, high multiple uh, names are uh, interest rate sensitive, and we can go through the list. But there's a there's a handful of categories that still have a considerable amount of downside left. Well, Brent, again, thanks for joining us uh, for the candor as well. Thank you. Brent Phil is the Jeffries Senior Technology Analyst. All right, the transports are lower along with the rest of the market, as you might imagine. They're down about 3%. And this is actually after seeing some upward momentum recently. Let's get right over to Frank Holland with more for us. Frank. Hey there, Kelly. You know, the S&P basically flat for the week, even after that post-Fed rally. But transport stocks, we're going to show you a few of them right now. They're actually rallying this week despite being down today. We're talking about stocks like FedEx uh, up, uh, you know, fractionally right now, but uh, for the week doing pretty well. Um, Also, Hub Group up over 13% after strong earnings 
ArcBest, another company up after strong earnings. These companies really benefiting from the need for a wide range of services, including freight brokerage, logistics, even white glove furniture moving, all those stocks, again, trading higher over the week. Now, remember that falling rates, those were supposed to be a sign of a freight recession. Well, rates, they're actually now down officially year over year. You see right here down 10% year over year, but still higher from early pandemic and pre-pandemic levels. Also, demand is up for these publicly traded players that provide, again, more than just trucking, which is really the focus of smaller companies. That's really their core business for the smaller companies. And here's why. Supply chains, they're simply in flux. Right now, container traffic at the Port of L.A., Long Beach, we've been talking about it. It's down 65% from the all-time high just back in January. Talk about rapid change. And then we see port traffic at alternative ports like the Port of New York, New Jersey, the second biggest port in the U.S., up 12% year-over-year in the most recent month of data. The Port of Houston, the Port of Virginia, both up 15% year-over-year in the most recent month of data. So basically what we're talking about, Kelly, is rapid change in the need for companies that can help you get what you got to get, where you can get it, even though your regular supply chain may be disrupted. One of the things, and come on over, Mr. Holland. Can I walk over here? Come on over. Wow. Um, one of the, just told you weren't supposed to walk over, but I'm going to have you over regardless. I'm, I'm over here now. Where should I stand? Uh, right there in the notch. You and I are tall, so we're like eye to eye. It's nice. Yeah. Um, so the thing with transports is we always look to them as the bellwether, but in this case, they do have to deal with higher fuel costs. Might be a little bit of an idiosyncratic issue, but maybe not. Maybe it does encapsulate. You know, we've been talking about diesel cost all day here on CNBC. One thing about diesel cost. It's uh, for a publicly traded company, a bigger company, they have a fuel surcharge where they actually pass along a lot of that cost to their customers. Fuel surcharge is up 88% over the year, over a year over year, excuse me. And in some cases, I want to keep, keep bear in mind, it's in some cases, these publicly traded players, they buy wholesale or just over wholesale. So they really pass on that expense to their customers. And they can actually make a little bit money, a little bit of money when these uh, fuel prices go higher. That's a great point. And when we hadn't considered Mr. Holland. Thank you, sir. Great to see you. Frank Holland. All right, let's get a quick check on markets as we head out for this hour. We see we're pretty much near session lows. The Dow is down 1,091 points, or 3.2%. The S&P is down 3.6% right now to 4144. Look at the NASDAQ, down 5.07%, or 657 points. Quick check on rates kind of gives you the sense of where that pressure is. We've seen the 10-year, the 30-year, the long end, where most of the movement has been since this morning. Those pretty much near session highs. 3.1% we did hit for the 10-year Treasury. There it is. We are just a hair below that level. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.